from the Queen Bayan Observer, New South Wales, 1903. Out in the fastness of the big mountains and deep scrub-tangled gullies west of the upper Murrumbidgee, a strange, shy and wild creature is said to have been seen on many occasions. It is spoken of sometimes as the hairy man, sometimes as the yahoo. For 30 years or more, it has occasionally made its appearance in those regions, according to common reports. If these reports were not so well authenticated and abundantly confirmed as I shall proceed to show, one might reasonably put them down to superstition or the exaggerations of imagination under the excitement of fear. If the evidence before us is worthy of credence, then the creature referred to does exist and is, in all probability, a living animal from its description. From the Monaro Mercury, New South Wales, 1871. From the fastness of the Jingara, adjacent to or in the district of Monaro, comes the startling intelligence that a wild man has been seen in that place. A little girl, the granddaughter of Mr. Joseph Ward Sr. of Mittagong, asserts that she has met a man whose back is bent and whose body is covered with a thick coat of hair. The strange being in question had nails of tremendous length on his hands. Confirmation of the above incident is the statement made by Mr. Kelly of the Jingarez, who says that he himself has seen the wild man. There is a tradition among the settlers of this place that the mysterious monster, the Yahoo, is a denizen of the mountainous country where the wild man has been discovered. This is the way the story is usually told. Modern sightings of a terrifying cryptid in Australia, a mysterious ape-man similar to the Yeti of the Himalayas or the North American Sasquatch, has been reported for decades, and these sightings tally closely to a creature mentioned since time immemorial in Aboriginal legends, a creature known as the Yahoo, or more famously, as the Yowie. That's how you'll hear it. Contemporary sightings of a creature from ancient legend. But are these two creatures really the same thing? Do Aboriginal tales really mention an animal known as the Yowie? And does this supposed animal from folklore really resemble the Bigfoot-like creature that became famous in Australia during the 1970s? Well, you're listening to White Atlantic Weird precisely to find out the answer to that question. This episode, the Yowie, Australia's Bigfoot or an invented cryptid. Listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a collection of the best urban legends, unexplained happenings, and mysterious sightings from both sides of the Atlantic. This episode, a little further away. A podcast where we believe the only difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. I'm your host, Kean, and I'm broadcasting from the Wide Atlantic Weird bunker. In fact, tonight I'm broadcasting from just outside the bunker in the forests that surround it which is why you can hear some birds chirping in the background. I think it's an appropriate location to do a cryptid-themed episode. And the bunker currently is, I must admit, 
located somewhere in deepest, darkest Essex, and not in the Australian outback, as would be more suitable for this episode. The second part of the episode will be a reading of a short story called The Minnesota Runestone, about the strange things that happen when a community comes to believe a false narrative about its own history. That, after the Yowie and its Australian antics. Now, tonight, however, I'm drinking a dirty pint of Foster's, which, uh, as any Australian will be quick to tell you, is effectively a UK beverage and generally not really drunk by Australians at all, but it's all I could get a hold of at short notice. So, the Yowie then. Well, cryptozoology fans will know that the wild man or ape man is an incredibly common motif when it comes to legendary creatures. It shows up again and again across many different cultures, yetis in Tibet, Sasquatch in the US and Canada, Orang Pendek in Sumatra. And generally, the Yowie is presented as being the Australian equivalent of these animals. Let's talk descriptions. The Yowie is generally shorter than Bigfoot, being anything from 5 to 7 feet tall, though there are regional variants that are tiny, being only 4 feet tall. The Yowie can be black-haired, reddish or white. It behaves rather like Sasquatch in general, screaming, throwing rocks, ripping up trees, making nests in long grass, and leaving behind strangely inconsistent footprints, sometimes with three toes and sometimes four. The Yowie has a strong stench that can instantly turn the stomach and fills onlookers with a sense of dread and terror. It has long claws and sharp fangs. It has been reported across Australia, but the beautiful Blue Mountains of New South Wales are the heart of the phenomena, with the highest concentration of sightings by far reported here. Now, sceptics are quick to point out that actually an unknown primate in Australia is far less likely than in other parts of the world, as not only does Australia have no indigenous hominids, but its mammalian fauna is entirely marsupial, that being an entirely different lineage of animals. This is something of a misconception. Australia actually has some placental mammals alongside its more famous marsupial residents, mainly bats and rodents that showed up much later in evolutionary time, but also the famous dingo, which is a relative of the wolf. And anyway, who's to say that the Yowie couldn't be a marsupial? Marsupials have thrown up analogues to placental dogs, wolves, squirrels, mice, and plenty of other animals. So why not apes? Uh, maybe because there's nothing even remotely resembling an ape-like marsupial in the fossil record. Tony Healy and Paul Cropper, in their 2006 book, The Yowie in Search of Australia's Bigfoot, divide Yowie reports by Westerners in Australia into three periods, and other writers have since taken this idea and expanded upon it. Firstly, the historical period. This, surprisingly, does not extend back into the mists of antiquity, as we have no records for such, but instead begins in the late 1700s, when the idea of an Australian wild man first shows up. In 1798, a popular pamphlet reported that a mysterious hairy giant, which was, quote, wild and knew nothing of Christianity, unquote, was brought to England from Botany Bay in Australia. This proved to be a hoax. Neither the name Yowie nor anything resembling it was used in the article. Healy and Cropper's book features an index called A Catalogue of Cases, 
and is a thorough rundown of the various cases of supposed Australian wildman encounters that were reported from this time, right through the 19th century and leading up to about 1912. And there are plenty of them. Now, I have to say that I came into this expecting to find that the Yowie was nothing but a myth formalised in the 1970s and back-projected onto these older reports. I expected that the Victorian-era wildman encounters would vary wildly and would not necessarily fit into our more modern concept of what a Bigfoot-type Yowie should look like. But reading through the many reports collected by Healy, Cropper and researcher Graham Joyner, who was an odd sort of sceptic himself, but we'll get into that later, they're not hella inconsistent with the 20th century Yowie. The reports are sometimes inconsistent, but not as inconsistent as the Yowie's sister cryptid, the Bunyip, for example. They're broadly in line with our post-20th century idea of what a Yowie should look like. Now, the word Yowie is not used to describe the creatures during this time. It's true that post-1970 sightings would backdate the contemporary term Yowie, and secondarily apply it to the older reports. It's quite similar to what happened in North America after the concept of Sasquatch took off after 1958, but that's a story for another day. So it seems unlikely to me that Yowie was any kind of Aboriginal word. In fact, there's ample evidence that Aboriginal peoples picked up the term from white settlers and not the other way around. So where did it come from originally? Well, in 1842, the Australia and New Zealand Monthly magazine first uses the term Yahoo to describe a mysterious man-like being spoken of by the Aboriginal peoples. This being they describe as resembling a man of nearly the same height but more slender, with long, white, straight hair hanging down from the head over the features, so as almost entirely to conceal them. The arms as extraordinarily long, furnished at the extremities with great talons, and the feet turned backwards, so that, on flying from man, the imprint of the foot appears as if the being had travelled in the opposite direction. Altogether, they describe it as a hideous monster of unearthly character and ape-like appearance. The dread of this spectre deters them from venturing abroad after sunset, unless in numbers, and having fire with them, which they conceive intimidates the fiend. Of the many evil endowments which the natives attribute to belonging to this fanciful creature, that of carrying off children and females, no traces of whom are afterwards found, appears to be most prominent and dreaded. The main detail that sticks out here as sounding more folkloric than biological is, of course, the backwards-facing feet. Interestingly, though, it is emphasised in the monthly magazine article that this creature is seen by the Aboriginal peoples as being entirely physical and not at all supernatural. Following this, unfortunately, the article lapses into the most abominable racism I think I've ever read. The author wonders whether the supposed Yahoo was in fact a man or an animal of low grade, noting a case in which Aboriginal peoples, upon first seeing a white man, took him to be a Yahoo. The term Yahoo, of course, was coined in the West, at least, by Irish writer Jonathan Swift to describe his race of beastly human-like beings in his satirical Gulliver's Travels. 
Yahoo researchers such as Graham Joyner have pointed out that the term Yahoo was sometimes used to describe captive orangutans exhibited in European cities during the first half of the 19th century. Joyner reckons that the use of the term implies the creatures cited in these historical encounters might have been simian or ape-like. I think that's a stretch myself. The term Yahoo was also in use more broadly to mean any kind of rough or uncouth person during this time. In any case, the term is used consistently enough in early 19th century accounts to make me think that, for whatever reason, this was the common name given to the animal by both settlers and natives. It's also worth noting that during the 1700s and well into the 1800s, Australian wildlife in general was seen as being extremely strange and mysterious to the new colonists. Not only did animals such as kangaroos and platypus seem utterly unlike anything they had seen before, but I've pored over newspaper accounts from this time that mention Yowie reports alongside bunyip reports of all descriptions and even stranger creatures too, such as snakes 45 feet long. Clearly, it was the Wild West in terms of understanding Australia's zoology, as well as being the Wild West in terms of newspaper reporting. Yahoo's are again mentioned in articles from the Sydney Morning Herald in 1843, in which the authors admit that details such as cloven hooves make this report inconsistent with others. By the 1860s, reports show up in newspapers of beings now called Australian gorillas. One description from the Sydney Empire in 1868 describes an animal that approached a woodcutter on Sugarloaf Mountain. In all appearance like a man, but painted with various devices in brilliant colours upon a red ground from head to heel. The creature was beautifully formed and in all respects resembled one of the human species. It stood about 5 feet 8 inches high, had long tangled hair and some ornament or bracelet round each knee, also some appearance of clothes above the waist. The being also carried a stick in each hand, wielding them as though they were tools. The woodcutter chased the creature back into the bush using his axe and his dogs. Now, I've chosen a few of the stranger reports, admittedly, to illustrate the variety of the sightings, but there are plenty of gorillas and yahoos written about throughout the 1860s, 70s and 80s that more or less resemble the classic wild man template. Reading through these dusty old articles gave me an uncomfortable feeling, a feeling that they were, on the whole, describing something consistent. Here's another report from the Queen Bayan Observer, 1894. The Bradywood Dispatch says that on the 3rd of October last, young Johnny McWilliams was riding from his home at Snowball to the Jimden Post Office. When about halfway, the boy was startled by the extraordinary sight of a wild man or gorilla. The boy states that a wild man suddenly appeared from behind the tree, about 30 yards from the road, stood looking at him for a few seconds, and then turned and ran for the wooded hills a mile or so from the road. The animal ran on for 200 yards across open country before disappearing over a low hill so that the boy had ample time to observe the beast. The boy states that he appeared to be over six feet in height and heavily built. He describes it as a big man covered with long hair. It did not run very fast and tore up the dust with its nails and in jumping a log it struck its foot against a limb when it bellowed like a bullock. When running, it kept looking back at the boy till it disappeared. 
It was three o'clock in the afternoon, and the boy describes everything he saw minutely. The boy is a truthful and manly young fellow, well acquainted with all the known animals in the New South Wales bush, and persists that he could not have been mistaken. For many years, there have been tales of trappers coming across enormous tracks of some unknown animals in the mountain wilds around Snowball. Again, I get the uncanny feeling that the reports are describing a definite phenomenon. Not to say that there couldn't simply have been a newspaper hoax craze, such as the airship flap of the 1890s, but I must admit I feel less certain that these reports were cherry-picked to fit in with the later post-70s Yowie. Perhaps the most high-profile Yahoo encounter during this time was that of amateur naturalist Henry James McCooey. He wrote of an encounter he had by the coast near Batemans Bay in New South Wales. McCooey described the creature he saw this way. I should think that if it were standing perfectly upright, it would be nearly five feet high. It was tailless and covered with very long black hair, which was of a dirty red or snuff colour about the throat or breast. Its eyes, which were small and restless, were partly hidden by matted hair that covered its head. When the Yowie is presented in uncritical media, it's usually assumed that it represents some kind of creature out of Aboriginal folklore. Now, a true discussion of Aboriginal folklore is definitely beyond the scope of this episode. It's a complex subject, and not one that I feel particularly qualified to comment upon. Suffice it to say that the various creatures spoken of in Aboriginal folklore tend to perform functions beyond simply being representations of real beings. At least, not always. Many of them have a spiritual or allegorical significance. Having said this, some of the creatures mentioned bear some resemblance to the Yowies, in particular the smaller variety, where they go under a variety of names such as Yuri, Yuriwana, Dulagal, Gulaga and Jingers, depending on where the story comes from. To be honest, it's extremely difficult to decide whether these reports of little hairy men represent a belief in their literal reality, or whether the colonial-era whites were simplifying a more complex belief system. The second period of Yowie reports, as described by Healy and Cropper, is referred to as the Quiet Period. From about 1912 until the 1970s, few Yowie encounters are reported. This lull has been attributed to the rapid urbanisation of Australia during this time. Reports from the rural fringes carried less weight as fewer people related to them. However, more recently it appears that a trove of reports from this so-called quiet period has been unearthed, so perhaps the apparent lull is an artefact of incomplete documentation. But most interesting of all is the modern period, from the 1970s on. About the year 1975, Australian writer Rex Gilroy set out to rescue Australia's forgotten wild man from the doldrums of history, and almost single-handedly revived interest in this colonial relic. Gilroy is an Australian writer and journalist who has written on a variety of esoteric subjects. His books have titles such as The Lost Civilization of Australia and Pyramids in the Pacific, he promotes Australian-themed occult theories of all kinds, so allow that to help you decide whether or not he's the kind of guy who would accurately report on the potential existence of a cryptid like the Yowie. In the 1970s, 
Gilroy unearthed the concept of the Yowie from out of the yellowed pages of Victorian newspapers, dusted it off and kicked off a new craze by writing about it. Newspapers and magazines from this period frequently cite Gilroy as a Yowie expert, albeit a self-appointed one. Rex claimed that he had his first sighting in 1970. He was hiking in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains when he stumbled upon enormous barefooted footprints in the bush. A later sighting of the creature itself begun his obsession. He read into Aboriginal mythology to find an identity for this creature and came up with the Yowie. This rebooted Yowie fits in nicely with the 70s craze for all things strange and mysterious. Its time had come. Gilroy's initial newspaper reports drew over 3,000 letters from readers who wanted to describe their own sightings. And Gilroy even found an unlikely ally in the creator of the ancient aliens genre, Eric Chariots of the Gods von Daniken, when the latter featured him in his documentary film. In December 1976, the Australian Women's Weekly reported that New South Wales was going through a flap of Yowie sightings, after a dam worker in Gugong was startled by a six-foot-tall, dark grey, hairy creature with its head merged into its shoulders, the Queen Bayan Festival Board put up a $200,000 reward for a captured Yowie. The money remains unclaimed to this day. In the Blue Mountains the same year, a fisherman chased two Yowies into the bush, upon which they retreated and threw stones at him in a manner familiar to fans of Bigfoot. It seemed as though the creatures were everywhere. Two fishermen at Turuka were stalked by a yaoi that swum around their boat. A man in Karai Plateau was pulled from his bed by a yaoi with extraordinarily long hair. Multiple terrifying visits by a yaoi caused timber cutters to flee their remote camp by the town of Lismore. So where does the term yaoi come from? Historian Graham Joyner has always maintained that the word is a figment of Gilroy's imagination. Joyner has written extensively on the phenomena of the 19th century Australian wildman or yahoos, but claims that when Gilroy resurrected the idea in the 1970s, he mistakenly called the beast Yowie, a term that Joyner says didn't exist prior to 1975. Though he comes off as the sceptic in this debate, Joyner does put forward his own odd theory that the Yahoo represents sightings of a real animal, an unknown marsupial of some kind that died out early in the 20th century. Today, the Yowie enjoys wide recognition across Australia, if not the world. There are Yowie hunters, Yowie organisations and Yowie museums. In fact, Yowie culture in the early 21st century is almost identical to Bigfoot culture in the US. It seems that the information age has caused the myth of the Yowie to spread far and wide, homogenizing it as it travels. As with many myths, the long, convoluted gestation and evolution of the idea has been flattened into a much simpler one. The Yowie is real, he's out there somewhere, and he's pretty much just like Sasquatch. The Yowie might be most like Sasquatch in that, as zoologist Darren Nash points out in his excellent book Hunting Monsters, the evidence for his existence seems to be entirely built around blurry photos and misshapen, unconvincing and inconsistent footprint casts. So, 
even if the Yowie isn't exactly the monster most likely to be out there, neither is it the invented cryptid I first suspected. The Yowie was definitely given a rebirth in the 70s, and possibly a snazzy new name, but my reading does show that there was a pre-existing tradition of hairy wild men in Australia that is not at all incompatible with modern Yowie lore. Sounds fair dinkum, mate. In this section, I'll read a short story I've put together called The Minnesota Runestone. It is based on a true story, and based on a few things I've seen during my own travels too, but I think the true story behind this will have to wait for another episode. So this is The Minnesota Runestone. From the book Travels in American Subcultures, 2008, by Derry Clark. Recommended for its chapter on the Juggalo subculture. Travels in American Subcultures, Chapter 10. It just feels right. Winters in the great north woods of Minnesota are long and dark. Up here, in the tiny communities that hug the north shore of Lake Superior, people live close to nature and are never lost for a reminder of its power. Here, the lake that fills the horizon like an ocean can still muster waves that sink ships. The lake is so big it creates its own climate, summoning ice storms that turn entire forests of ghost-white birch into bent, twisted wraiths. It's a place that seems tailor-made for the creation of myths. On the night of the winter solstice, I'm driving on the famous Highway 61, the lake my constant companion, to visit the tiny community of Stockholm, Minnesota. Home to only 150 souls, mostly the descendants of Scandinavians, as the name suggests. Stockholm is infamous in archaeological circles as the home of an artefact known as the Minnesota Runestone. The runestone is said to be evidence that Swedish or Viking explorers travelled much further into the interior of America than is accepted by mainstream archaeologists. Viking runes are carved into this 200-pound piece of sandstone, detailing an expedition by Scandinavians in the region in the year 1360. Ever since the stone's discovery in a field outside Stockholm in 1900, experts have been fuming about it, with geologists, historians and linguists united in their scorn for what they view as a clumsy hoax. But there's more to the stone than a thumb in the eye of conventional history, for a curious following has built up around this artefact in the years since its discovery. It seems that folks have become very attached to the idea of European explorers being in America in medieval times. And on this most auspicious of eves, I'm on my way to find out why. You've got to understand that there's a lot riding on the conventional view of history. Saul Anderson tells me, his bulky frame covered in a ski-mobile jacket that's bulging with patches and sponsored logos. He looks like a hockey dad, but he's no dummy. He's a local school teacher who tells me that he's always been drawn to the stone because the first time he saw it, it just felt right. We're standing outside the brand new Minnesota Runestone Interpretation Centre, a small but impressive building of stone and glass that sits on a field of snow-covered soil. If we can ignore 
or even cover up the evidence we've got here, then we can kind of cut Europeans out of the picture, you understand? Saul is a nice guy, but already I'm uncomfortable. A small crowd of people are filing into the centre for tonight's event as the short day begins to die. I wonder if they all hold similar views. After the stone was taken to the U, he continues, referencing the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, the guys there did a hack job on it. They claimed that the runes were of a type that didn't match the date carved on the stone. They claimed that the weathering on the edges of the stone proved it was a forgery, a fake. He casts his eyes to the birch forests on the horizon. But Ole Johnson, who discovered the stone in 1900, this was his land. He never made a dime out of it. Why would he fake it? He was a farmer and he didn't have any interest in history. And the stone has been examined plenty since. It's well known that the early research was shoddy. I don't know why this line of reasoning makes me nervous, but it does. It's not that Saul is promoting a theory that goes against mainstream science. I've met with many people with similar ideas during my travels, but there's something just beneath the surface of all this that's nagging at me. Inside the centre, there are displays and photographs documenting Johnson's find. There's a sepia-toned picture of him standing beside a tree, the stone resting where it was found among the roots. There are breakdowns of the type of runes used and examples of the alphabet. The small room feels crowded. Folks are milling around, pointing out details to one another. There are families, old folks, policemen, teachers. There are no arguments or disagreements. I get the impression that this is all a well-told tale for most of them. And my sense of being an outsider grows. According to the traditional interpretation of the runes, the stone was left by a group of Scandinavian explorers in the year 1360. They referred to themselves as being a group of Norsemen or Norwegians who had travelled from Vinland in the east. They mentioned a great lake that took 20 days to travel across and an endless forest on the other side. They travelled to a place where the red men didn't live, having lost three men to a native tribe on the far side of the lake. Then they carved the stone as a record to show how, how far west they had come. Vinland is the term generally used by historians to refer to the parts of North America that were known to the Viking travellers. It's thought to be limited to parts of Newfoundland, far east of here, right? I say to Lois Erickson, director of the centre. She's a neat professional woman in her early thirties. Well, that's only if you overlook the evidence we have here, she says, choosing her words carefully. It's known that it would have been possible for 14th century explorers to get from Hudson's Bay through Lake Winnipeg and the Red River and onto what is today Minnesota. There's no reason why they couldn't have done so. I look around the room. The visitors are overwhelmingly white. In fact, they're entirely white. This certainly isn't unusual for northern Minnesota, but again... Something subconscious is biting at the back of my brain. Something is wrong. As the sky outside blackens, Lois and the other staff gather everyone into the tiny display room at the north end of the building. This is the symbolic heart of the centre, the home of the stone. Unlike the rest of the new building, this room is unchanged from how it was back when Ole Johnson first put the stone on display. It's little more than a wooden shack, Somehow its humbleness adds to its sacredness. The audience quietens as they file in. The chamber is open-roofed. 
The stone is bathed in starlight. I zip up my coat against the freezing air. Orion, the winter maker, beams down on us from the heavens. The stone itself seems enormous, heavy with the weight of history, perhaps, or maybe the weight of meaning. Aline, another interpreter, begins a ceremony intended to welcome in the winter. On the face of it, this is why so many people have shown up tonight, in a place where so much of the year is dark and cold, giving the winter a symbolic welcome can have a positive effect on the psyche. There is an oddly pagan bent to the ceremony, though, beyond simply focusing on the seasons and the natural world. We thank Ulor, the bringer of snow, and express our gratitude for the white blanket that protects our fertile lands. We are thankful for the dead generations who tilled it before us, who prepared the land for our coming in centuries past. This is our home. This has always been our home. Saul, Lois and the others echo the words, as they have done many times before. My eyes are drawn to the stone. It seems to glow in the starlight. It's as if the stone is alive. I sense the significance of it, the connection with history, the power of being able to trace a direct line from then until now, especially in a country so uncomfortable with its history. I turn around and my eyes bulge. Lois is wearing the face of an eyeless deer. Antlers rise grotesquely towards the stars. I survey the room, my pulse racing. The audience is composed entirely of animals. A smell of decay chokes me. We thank Ulor, they chant. This has always been our home. I turn for the door. Something grabs my wrist. What's wrong? Aren't you Irish? My accent has not gone unnoticed. This is your home too. I stare into the black sockets of a crane, the little skull perched absurdly above ski-jacketed shoulders, its pointed beak bobbing. I break Saul's grip and run for the car park. Outside, the freezing air tears at my lungs. The stars tilt crazily as I stumble toward my car. I pull a crazy donut in the snow before zooming away from the Minnesota Runestone Interpretation Centre. I hold my breath as I pass through downtown Stockholm, but I see nobody on the streets. I tear onto Highway 61 and make straight for the city of Duluth. Back in town, I down a bourbon in the hotel lobby. A concierge and a few late-night drinkers listen to my tale. They don't seem too surprised. It's well known that stories of ancient European explorers tend to tap into certain dangerous beliefs. It's common among the uneducated, says one well-meaning gentleman. I choke on my drink. I can't bring myself to tell him about the teacher I met, or the policemen, the computer programmers, the families. End of extract. You've been listening to a distinctly Antipodian episode of White Atlantic Weird. If you like the show and want to keep the lights on in the bunker, give me a review and a rating wherever you listen, and share episodes on social media with anyone who you think might be interested. You can chat with us on Twitter too, where we're at Strange Ireland, and please do send us on any weird personal encounters you might have had. After all, we're ready to believe you. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 